At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn how to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. I was a camp counselor in, uh, in college, and we, we would have these, it was in Colorado, and every summer we'd have kids come for three-week stints, and uh, the first two weeks they'd kind of work at the campus, they'd be like underling employees, but then on the third week we'd go on for a week-long backpacking trip. And the first two weeks, George had not made himself the most helpful in our work, so like you know, one group would go and clean out the toilets, and one group would go and um, you know muck out a bonfire that had been used and like need to be prepared for the next night. George was one of those kids who struggled. He struggled to be on task. He struggled to do anything. He struggled to not open his no- mouth in a whiny way. And so we all knew, all of us camp counselors, that when week three came, when we were hiking through the San Juan Mountains of Colorado, if you've never looked that up, Write it down, the San Juan Mountains are absolutely gorgeous, but they are absolutely uphill and downhill for forever. We knew that by week three, George was going to have the trial of his life. Now, I was always put on the caboose of the line, so you'd have those, like, really the super uh, campers who are in the front, and they're charging through. I imagine my wife would have been one of those, like, just, like, really task-oriented and ready to get to the, where we're going to, like, camp at night. And, you know, on average, we would hike like four to six miles a day, which is no small feat. And for these kids, it was their first time probably. So it was a very difficult thing for some of them, especially George. Now, George was in the caboose with me. In fact, George tried to become the caboose, but I had to slow down my pace even further. So every step, he was telling me, I can't do it. My feet are on fire. No, George, your feet are not on fire. I can't feel my toes. One time he even like fell on his back and he's like, literally my legs are falling off. No, George, your legs are not falling off. My fingers, my fingertips are numbs. What happened to my fingernails? George, your fingernails are fine. Every organ of his body was suddenly the point of departure from reality and George was struggling. Now, I was the caboose and I was not the guy who like was setting up camp. So I didn't know how much longer we had. But like any long road trip where like, Two, 10 minutes in, your, your, your children start asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? George, every two minutes, how much longer? George, I don't know. Just keep walking. How much longer? We're not getting there any faster if you keep on whining. How much longer? Well, we came upon this like hill. And it was like one of those moments where there was a massive incline and it was, it was, it was all tr- drudgery. Because by this point, my emotions are on a, like a, on a razor's edge. George had exhausted all that was inside of me, all perseverance and all ability to be the good counselor. So I just had to like learn to be quiet. It was a moment of learning for me. When then suddenly we come over this grassy knoll and we see camp. And George, suddenly his fingertips work. Suddenly his legs are able to move. He had ambulation at a level that I had not seen the entire two and a half weeks that I'd seen. All of a sudden he beelines for camp tosses off his backpack and he's just running and playing frisbee and I'm sitting there wondering like, what in the world just happened to this kid? What happened to George? 
Poor George had the entire time, and for the next two days, he was in the caboose with me, whining about, but any time we turned that final corner and we'd see camp, George was free. And no matter what he'd experienced in the past, it was all a far distant memory. Now today we're going to look at John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. And it's a very simple passage, but it's a passage in which Jesus calls us to see what's coming. The Upper Room Discourse is a phenomenal passage in which Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure. Right now, if we could see it, Jesus, uh, if we could pull back heaven, we would see Jesus on the throne. But alongside that comes the promise that he, just as he is enthroned now, he's coming back for us, and in that day, he'll make all things new. Now, this in-between period that, in which we all live, in which all Christians live, This time of his session is what theologians call it. This is a time of today. And in this passage, Jesus refers to this time as today. But there's coming a tomorrow. And he wants the disciples to have a very clear understanding. So let's look at the passage first. Our passage uh, contains two sections, truly. The first one is Jesus, in verse 16, says something the disciples don't get. And so they say, we don't get it. And so Jesus says, did you not get the thing that I said that you should get? And they say, no. That's the first part. In verses 20 through 24, Jesus explains his statement from verse 16. That's basically it. It's a beautiful passage. So in verse 16 and through 19, we see this. Verse 16, Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. The disciples, understandably, are confused by this statement. And we as modern readers who know the rest of the story should suspend ourselves away from the fact that I know the end of the story. How could they be confused by this? They didn't have a clue what he was talking about. So in verse 17 we read, So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he's saying to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. In verse 19, Jesus responds to them. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. What follows in verses 20 through 24 is him stopping what he's doing and helping them understand. I love this about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is completely unbothered when we are like George and we don't understand and we want more information, we're in an uncomfortable situation, and we need more, and he's happy to stop and give us more. Jesus knew in the Upper Room Discourse, and if you haven't read the whole John chapter 15 through 17, it's a massive undertaking. He was trying to help them see his hand in today, tomorrow, and eternity. He knew he was dropping serious stuff on them, and that their processing powers were limited. They couldn't understand the categories he was introducing to them. But like a true, kind teacher, he genuinely wants them to understand, and so he takes the time to help them. And so here's how he responds. He gives them a timeline and a powerful metaphor. He says, there's a before, and there's an after. There's the first thing, and then there's the last thing. First this, and then that. So here's our first point for I want us to see today. This is the first thing we need to understand about from our passage. Know the timeline. Now, I grew up, 
as I'm sure many of you who grew up in Christianity uh, did as well, you have shown all sorts of charts and graphs for the end times. First this, then this, then this, the book of Revelation laid out in chronological order. This is not what he's doing. He's not trying to give us a synthesis of all of the end times material in the Bible, point by point by point by point. Some people devote their lives to that. It may be a worthy process. I'm not expecting any of that, and I don't think Jesus is expecting that here. What he wants them to see in the upper room discourse is the timeline of his ministry and how it relates to them. So in the, if you read the upper room discourse, here's the timeline in which all of his teaching fits. I'm here. I am going away. And while I'm gone, I will send the Holy Spirit. But I'm coming again. Yay! That's the timeline. The whole thing. If you lay that timeline out on a sheet of paper and you, you plot the verses in, you'll see that every section deals with one of those parts. I am here. I did X, Y, and Z. I am going away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And you will experience this. I am coming again. And here's what all that means. That's the timeline. And in this passage, he gives us the same sort of thing. It's a very simple rubric to help us understand that behind the simplicity of this timeline are huge eternal realities that he wants us to know are happening. The timeline is important because Whatever today brings, today isn't the last day. There's a tomorrow coming, and it will be good. In preparing his disciples for what's coming next, he gives them a timeline that includes what they can expect of the world and what they can expect of him. There is a before, and there, but there will be an after we see first one thing, but we will see the next thing too. So let's look at John 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. So first, in our timeline, weeping, lamenting, and sorrow, and a world that is full of mockery and rejoicing today. But tomorrow, you will have sorrow that turns to joy. First, weeping and mourning in a world that doesn't like you and isn't for you and works to hurt sometimes. But don't worry. No matter how deep those sorrows are, they will turn into joy. The second example is a powerful metaphor, pregnancy. He compares this whole timeline to pregnancy. John 6, 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has a sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. First, sorrow and anguish and agony and a body at war with a baby. And there's nothing to do but wait. But then there will come a moment where the sorrow will return to joy and all that bodily anxiety and anguish will be pressed far into the back of our mind because there's a baby in our arms. Now, ladies, now I've never been pregnant. I don't know if you know this, but it's true. I, Nathan, have never been pregnant. But I've heard stories upon stories of how babies, uh, delivery stories. Now, when we, got, when we were pregnant with one of each of our three kids, like one of, somebody would show up inevitably and want to tell us all the horrible things that they'd experienced in delivery. But then they'd also have the inverse of that. You'd have Aunt Mildred, who was her hundredth child, and boop, out came a baby. And everything in between. But I can tell you from a husband's perspective, having watched like a powerless dumb fool, uh, it didn't matter what I was doing there. I was just there. Um, you know, you go to these Lamaze breathing classes and they're like, breathe, breathe, breathe. You know, 
breathe. I don't know if it works. I mean, scientifically, apparently it does. There are people who are professionals in this room who could tell me if it's true or false. I don't know. Rachel's holding my hand, crushing its very bones into non-existence. And then there came this moment, a lull. I thought it was a lull. The nurse told me it was a lull. Hear that. A lady who worked at a hospital and oftentimes delivered babies said, oh, this is a lull. You can go get your Diet Coke and then come back and take a nap. This is not part of the sermon, but husbands, don't do it. Let me just save you the trouble. Don't get your nap. You don't need a Diet Coke. It is not a lull. Because even though there might be nothing for the medical staff to do, and there's definitely nothing for you to do other than stand there, it's not a lull. Because inside the woman is a lot happening. And so let me just tell you right now, this is free because I did this. Ask, I didn't do this. Ask your wife now, like, what would you like me to do when you're giving birth to our child? Would you like me to fall asleep? Does that sound like good to you? Rachel's laughing because I found out that I had done the wrong thing by her <laughs> and uh, paid a dear price for that because what was supposed to be a sweet moment of me, like, Diet Cokeless, which, what kind of world is that? And sleepless, why? I had apparently left her in this in-between phase. But then... I get this, the nurse wakes me up, and I was, you know, I wasn't really sleeping so much like this, like that, that level just below, above sleep, where you're kind of asleep, but you're not actually resting. All of a sudden, the moment comes. Oh, we're getting ready. All the doctors suddenly pour in, and there's like a million people, and the walls turn into these instruments, and all of a sudden, there's push, 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 baby. And this unbelievable thing happened. All of the things that my wife had experienced at that point were just pushed far, far away. And it was, I remember, like, I didn't remember, remember any noise. It was just, there was a child here. There probably was noise, probably a lot of commotion. But everything was pushed far back. This is the landing point for Jesus' statement. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. So now there's sorrow. Later I will see you again. Now your hearts will rejoice because a child is born. I, like a mother who's given birth, will draw you to myself. And no one will take that joy from you. So Jesus in verse 16 says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. And this timeline is simple. But it represents the concrete realities that give all of Jesus' disciples perspective on what today is and what tomorrow is. There is today. But there is also tomorrow. And God holds them both. He radically holds them both. The woman is not infinitely pregnant. Sorrows are not infinitely present. The flavor of joy that we taste today is the banquet of our tomorrows. And if we know the timeline, we gain precious perspective from a God who wants us to have perspective. So what do we know? This is what we know. We know that today has a place. So when we think about it, place it where it needs to be. This is a transient, temporary thing. 24 hours, it'll roll into the next. 
minute by minute, our life being drawn powerfully by God into the eternity of his choosing. Our life, step by step, moving to something else that is good. And this is true regardless of what today may be like. Life, as you know, ebbs and flows between seasons of joy and laughter and seasons that just feel rotten. Our todays might be full of sorrows, and perhaps they are. But today is going to pass. Tomorrow's joy, it won't pass. Joys today can be taken away, and joys today can exist next to sorrows and agonies. But joys tomorrow are permanent and secure. So know the timeline. Put today where it actually is. Put today where it actually is. In the hands of God drawing you to eternal joy. So that's the first point. Very simple. But know it. Know the timeline. Today is this. Tomorrow is coming. I can wait. And I will be secure when I get there. But the second point is very important for us as we endure sorrows today. And it's this. Ask for tomorrow's joy today. Our days are full of sorrows and loss, but that's not the only thing that fills them. Our days are full of sorrows and loss. That's not the only thing that fills them. John 16, 6 says, A little while and you will see me. A little while and you will see me no longer. And a little while and you will see me. Then he describes a today that will be full of sorrows. At first, you won't be seeing Jesus face to face. There will be weeping, lamenting, and sorrow. The world will rejoice. More sorrows, more anguish. And then he compares it to childbirth. And, I don't know, childbirth. First, there's that first trimester where... Nobody knows, but the woman is having all these things happen inside, and then foods that were so exciting, like tacos, are suddenly, but suddenly pickles are delightful, and you want those, and there's weird combinations. And then the big birth announcement that sometimes sets fire to um, an entire entire forest. Like, people are going way overboard on these birth announcements, people. I need to bring it down a little bit. And then second trimester, where the woman is feeling okay, they're, you know, they have what they call the pregnancy glow. Now, I have never had a pregnancy glow. I'm just shimmering and luminous all the time. But you, ladies are brought into this, and then it comes third trimester. The, finally, the moment where men are allowed to ask because it's so obvious that a woman is pregnant that they won't get penalized for asking. And then comes that moment where, oh my, like she can't walk. She can't hardly move. And then delivery. That nine-month phase is how Jesus compares our day-to-day life with waiting for his return. And I don't know, like giving birth, I don't know how you ladies do it. Pra-the-vo. I stub my toe and think I'm going to die. I see a spider crawl towards me quickly, and I do want to die. Y'all give birth to eternal souls and Then do it again? Ha! God bless you. It's really impressive. I can't do it. And this is the thing. Like, that's how big of an event it is that Jesus compares what you guys can do naturally with how he's going to make all things new. That's beautiful. The reality of holding the beautiful child is so permanent, so present, that it'll push away all of our lives' pain to something way back in the distance. Memory can't even serve them because you have something so different and so other. 
Our days are full of sorrow and loss, but that's not the only thing that fills them. We are called by Jesus to ask for his joy for tomorrow, today. What we will experience in all of eternity, we can start having now, at least in part. We can ask for what we will experience for all eternity now. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verses 22 through 24. He didn't take a quick detour. Jesus didn't lose his way in his lecture. He didn't lose his train of thought, as a guy like me, like I do. He's saying that in the midst of today's troubles, while we wait for eternal joy, he's happy to give it to us. A joy that will sustain us in the midst of our trouble. We can ask for it. And he's happy to supply it. So, in verse 22, you have sorrowed now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This promise of asking and receiving has gotten sadly lost in the world of the prosperity gospel. You have your people like the Joel Steens, the Kid Kothlins, the John Hagees, Joyce Myers, and all of like, their crowd who are turning this into a divine checking account, like a charge card. You know, as long as you say it in Jesus' name, he'll give it to you. So God, I'd like a Lamborghini. In Jesus' name, pow! God, I ruined my life with smoking, but now I need new lungs. In Jesus' name, like that, that's not what he's saying here authoritatively, that's not what he's saying here. Jesus is not saying that asking in his name is a charge card to get you whatever's on your mind. But then, careful Christians, not wanting to fall into false teaching, have just avoided this passage. And they've muted the very promise from the very words of Jesus Christ in a desire not to fall into false teaching. No, we should hear the promise. Asking and receiving matters. Asking and receiving what you need is God providing for you what you need to make it to the end? Just as if you're going hiking with George, don't do so because George was awful, like, as, you went, as you go hiking, if you need sustenance or water and you ask for sustenance or water, you will get sustenance or water because that's what you need to make it. And Jesus knows that we have all this need. He knows we're in a world that is broken and that we exist as broken people in that world. But when we encounter a need that we have, we know that we can go to God for it and we'll receive it and he will give it to us. So when we encounter sorrows that cause us to feel like joy can't be real, Jesus says, ask for joy and I will give it to you. This passage actually shows the limitations because this asking and receiving happens only between his ascension into heaven and his return. So this time in between, when we're waiting for his return, Jesus says, ask for what you need. And you see that in John 16, 23. In that day, you will ask nothing from me. The very first before it talks about his return. In that day, when I return, you don't need to ask anymore because you got me there. But during this time, when we have needs... We're supposed to ask, and God delights to provide them for us, which is what we see in the rest of verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive. There will be no asking in eternity because all things will be had. 
But until then, if you need joy in the midst of sorrow, ask for joy in the midst of sorrow. Do so. God delights to pour joy into you. He will happily provide it for you. Now, every Christmas, there's this thing that happens. There's a friend that I know who works a big-time job. He makes all the monies, and he gets these bonuses that how people have, like, I don't know. He calls me up, and he says, Nathan, what would you like for Christmas? I got this bonus. And he tells me the number, and it just, that number blows my mind. And he says, what do you want? Now, the first year he did this, I was a coffee cup. He's like, no, 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 no. I want you to ask for something big. Well, give me a dollar amount, man. Like, I don't want to do this. This is really sort of like panicking thinking about that moment. Because every year it comes at Christmas time. Every sinking year for the last 10 years. I should know it by now. I should be emotionally prepared. And, and yet, every year I'm like, ah, I don't know what to say. And here's why. I've, come, I've tried to dial into my emotional anxieties. And I figured out why. I don't like asking. That's the problem. I'm not embarrassed for what I make. I'm not embarrassed for how much he makes. I'm afraid of asking. Because what if I ask for something that's too big? We have this perspective of God that if we ask him for the things we need to get through life now, that he's going to be like, oh, come on. You couldn't have dealt with what I... You can't use the resources I gave you. That's not how God is. God is more like my generous friend who says, what do you want? Come on, get in it, come on, get in it, get, get dirty with it. Think about it. Come back to me in a week, and then I'll just, I'll just buy you anything. Like, it's weird, it's so weird when it happens every Christmas time. But it's such a reminder of God's grace. And in this situation, Jesus, knowing that we're going to enter in a world full of sorrow, where our relationships are fractured, where death is constantly present, where memory can be filled with so much hope and so much loss, where our hopes and expectations are dashed because people sin against one another, where babies die and so do expectant mothers, where war, rumors of war, all these things exist, and then there's just the internal boiling that doesn't seem to go away sometimes. In the midst of that, Jesus says, ask, ask for joy. You don't have to wait for tomorrow to get what I can give you now. So it, it bears asking, what is this joy? If he says we can ask for it, well, what is joy? Is it just a smile? Aha! Like that scene in the Batman, the one with Jack Nicholson, where everyone puts on the weird makeup and they got this Joker smile and then they die. Like, no, that's not what it is. It's not a fake smile you paste on. This is the real thing. It's more than just a happy emotion, but it's certainly not less. Let's look at John 16, 22. First thing we need to know about this eternal promise is this. You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. No one can take it away. You ever been around like one of those joy suckers, a person who lives like an eternal sponge? No matter how happy you are, you can be winsome and lithe and full of hope and merriment, and all of a sudden you walk into the presence of the joy sucker, and then you walk out this haggard shell of a soul. No one can take Christ's joy from you. In John 15, 11, from the previous chapter, we find out that this is Jesus' own joy which is huge. He's giving to us what he has in himself. 
John 15, 11, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is insane. It's not just a joy, an abstraction that the philosophers can like point to and say, Hoo-hoo. like this is the literal heartbeat of Jesus given to you. And not in like teaspoon amounts, but the overflowing amount, the bucket amount, the person who keeps your glass full the whole night. This is how it works. But there's more to that. And I need everyone to look at John 16, 20 with me because this will blow our minds and we cannot miss this. Joy somehow has a unique relationship with sorrow because God is an awesome God. For in some mysterious way, from the seedbed of our sorrows comes the mighty oaks of God's joy. In John 16, 20, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. There are a lot of things this can mean. But it certainly means, first, that sorrow can exist alongside joy. One, the presence of sorrow does not negate the presence of joy. But it also means this. Sorrow today does not have the last word in our lives. Sorrow, because God is powerful, is turned in against itself. Sorrow becomes its own downfall. Sorrow, which should otherwise just break and destroy us, becomes the seedbed for joy. Can we stop and think about that for a moment? How big is God? We can talk about how big sorrows are because they're the worst. They fracture families. They destroy nations. They create bombs to kill at mass levels. This is what sorrow has created. And God's love is so much bigger that it can turn all of that, which is supposed to create weeds and distraction and briar and death, from that seedbed, God will bring forth the flowers of joy because that's how big he is. Jesus gave us this joy today to show us a tomorrow that is real. Even if we're experiencing suffering, which we will. You may not be experiencing now and good for you, but you will experience it, so ask for joy. Joy is not a feeling. It is the very reality of the presence of the incarnate God. And it's wrapped up in the heart of a Jesus, the Savior, friend, the giver of all good things, the winner of the race, the champion of our souls, the redeemer of the earth, the king who sits on the throne, the mother hen who gathers in her chicks, the bridegroom who's returned, the owner of a tomorrow that's sure to come. The very reality of our joy and hope is bound in this person And he says to us in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. That's today. And again, a little while and you will see me. That day is coming. We will see him in his victory and glory. We will share that. And then from the ashes, from the splintering of the concrete, flowers from asphalt, diamonds in the pockets of our tear-filled eyes, because that is how big our God is. So dear Christian, know the timeline. There is today, but tomorrow is coming. It is sure and it is real. Today is hard, but today is not all that will be. There is a tomorrow, and it is full, full of joy.
And we can have, by God's mercy, some of what tomorrow offers today. That includes joy. We do not need to wait. We do not need to wait. We do not need to wait for the peace that passes understanding or a laughter that interrupts a rage of tears. Tomorrow the child is born. Today is the child birth. But God loves you so much that he will give you today a taste of what will be yours for all eternity. And all you have to do is ask. So ask. This week, today, whatever you're facing, now, don't even have to have an eloquent prayer. God delights over you. And if all you can say is, God, give me joy. He's not going to spurn the people for whom he died, who, is, who he loves. So ask that your joy may be full. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.